Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Bill Whalen, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Election 2016, Far from the Republican Matting Crowd, and it was recorded on August 18th, 2015. This is the second time I've been to Jackson Hole. I was here just about a year ago at this time. Um, I appreciate those of you who heard me a year ago enduring me yet again. Uh, and I did something last year that was departing with character as a somewhat jaundiced political observer, and I gave you a rather bullish forecast on Republican fortunes. I told you that after the election, there would be 30 Republican governors. There ended up being 31. I told you there'd be 242 members of the House. There were 246. I told you the Senate would break large to the Republicans. They would walk away with 53 seats, and they got 54. And the only race I got wrong was, guess what, where my family lives, North Carolina. <laughs> so you look at the race now, and you see, gee, what a crowd. What a crowd of characters this is. 17 Republicans are on the stage in Cleveland in those two debates. Actually, if you look on the FEC records, you find that there are 38 Republicans who are formally declared candidates. It is almost an A to Z of Americans, starting with a gentleman named Skip Andrews, a self-described army child and businessman, going to W and ending with Scott Walker. There is a Republican named George Bailey, proving that, yes, running for president, it's a wonderful life. <laughs> I thought you would get that. There's a candidate who quotes from both Philippians and the Koran. How's that for a fusion candidate? There's a candidate who, would, if he had his way, would merge the Army, uh, the Air Force into the Army and merge the Marines into the Navy. I know General Mattis loves that idea. And there's also a candidate by the name of Jack Failure. And let me just read to you what Mr. Failure has been doing at his campaign. Mr. Failure, it's spelled F-E-L-L-U-R-E, Failure. He's been running since 1988, and he says he's running because he blames society's ills on, and I quote, atheists, Marxists, liberals, queers, liars, draft dodgers, flag burners, dope addicts, sex perverts, and anti-Christians. Did I leave anybody out? <laughs> on the other hand, you think about check failure, and is there somebody who could better sum up our opinion about politicians? Just think of the bumper sticker, invest in failure. I know, I need a drum roll. So of the 17 Republicans running right now, and this tendency among Republicans to be rather self-defeating and being depressed about the situation and thinking, my goodness, how can we have this many people running? I would simply say to the joke about the horse who walks in the bar, or John Kerry, why the long face? Simply look at what's going on on the other side with the Democrats. The Democratic candidate getting the most excitement this summer, drawing the biggest crowds and making the biggest jump in the polls, is not even a Democrat. It's Bernie Sanders, a self-described Democratic Socialist, whatever on God's earth that is. The Democrats talk about being a national party. They have five candidates in their field. There's not a Democrat running for president who lives to the south, to the west, or the northwest of the Washington, D.C. area. The Democratic primary field looks like an Amtrak schedule. It starts in Washington, D.C. with former Virginia Senator Jim Webb. It makes a stop in Baltimore where you pick up former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley. and then makes its way up to New York where you go through the New York City and Long Island to pick up uh, Hillary. Then you go through Rhode Island when you pick up that political dynamo that is Lincoln Chafee. 
Then you finally make your way up to Burlington in your destination where there's Bernie Sanders. It's a northeastern crowd. And if the Democrats talk about adding to their field, it's more of the same. Elizabeth Warren, next stop Boston. Joe Biden, next stop Delaware. What else is going on in the Democrat side of things? The Democrats talk about diversity at all times. They have one woman running for president, same as the Republicans do. They have zero minority candidates. Republicans have minority candidates, the Democrats don't. The Democrats talk about being America's party of youth. The youngest Democrat running is Governor O'Malley, who is 54 years old. There are four Republicans younger than Martin O'Malley in this race. So don't be depressed about the size of the field. 17 is not an unmanageable number. But of that 17, let's start winning it down. Well, by the way, one other thing I'd add about the Democratic equation, the Democrats will push back saying, well, okay, you have a more exciting field than we do maybe, but we control the electoral map. Uh-uh, not true. Since 270 is the number that counts in politics, let's go back to the 2012 election and look what happened. Barack Obama walked away with 332 electoral votes to just 206 for Mitt Romney, but it's a shaky 332 for Hillary in this regard. You take away Florida, which Romney lost by less than 1% of the vote, and then you toss in Ohio, and 332 is now down to 285. You toss Virginia into the equation, and you're down to 272. Any single state with three electoral votes does the trick for Republicans. If Virginia is beyond the Republicans' grasp, they can merely go to Colorado and Iowa, pick up those two states, and that puts them at 270 on the nose. Game over. And I'd point out, by the way, that in Florida, in Ohio, in Colorado, in Iowa, Hillary Clinton is underwater against Republican opponents right now. So, so I bring good news. So there's not a lock. So you look at this election, and that adds up well for Republicans. You throw in the change factor that we like to switch parties every eight years, and we're, by the way, in the middle of a very curious point in history. President Bush, Barack Obama, and Bill Clinton will have each served eight years in office, two consecutive two terms each. The only other time this has happened in American history is Presidents three, four, and five, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. So in this kind of odd age and continuity, but also rotating in and out of parties. So the question is, will Americans want to continue the Democratic hold, or historically, as they tend to, switch parties? So for these reasons, it does not bode well for Democrats. So that's the good news for Republicans. Now let's get into the not-so-good news. There's chaos in the Republican field right now. That's probably the best way to describe it. Disorganization. And this goes absolutely against the Republican presidential existence. From Ronald Reagan in 1980 to Mitt Romney in 2012, there has been a pattern to how Republicans go about their presidential business. It starts with somebody entering the race having run the last time. And they walk into the new race with the best organization and the most money and a good narrative, it's usually they're in their 60s or their 70s, and it's their last race and their last hurrah. And that candidate either steamrolls the competition or outlasts the competition. That's how it was with Reagan in 1980. That's how it was with the elder Bush in 1988. That's how it was with Bob Dole in 1996. The pattern breaks with George W. in 2000, but it picks right back up with John McCain in 2008, who was the runner-up in 2000. It continues in 2012 with Mitt Romney. It does not continue in 2016. There is no nominee in waiting for the Republicans. Conversely, there is a nominee in waiting for the Democrats. So up is down and down and up is that respect. Republicans are running as Democrats with a rather chaotic field. And the Democrats, like it or not, have a nominee in waiting. It's a very Republican setup they have. Also complicating things for Republicans, 
is simply this, the search for the next Ronald Reagan, a search which quietly has been going on for some time now. Ronald Reagan left the stage in 1988, and there has not been a presidential candidate or Republican president who's really succeeded him in terms of moving the party in a new direction or emotionally capturing hold of the party the way Reagan did. The, of the two Republican presidents, the elder Bush did not get into the business of trying to redefine the Republican Party. The younger Bush tried, remember compassionate conservatism, but compassionate conservatism, I'd argue, was a casualty of 9-11. George W. became a wartime president, and the agenda of Noah Child left behind and kinder, gentler, and so forth never really took root. Thus, the Republican Party, since the younger Bush took left office in 2008, has been living as someone of a void. And the question is what Republican will come in and fill it. John McCain was not the answer in 2008, nor is Mitt Romney in 2012. We'll see if a Republican in 2016 can do this. So if you look at this field of 17 right now, I think that one thing we have to do is we have to start separating the wheat from the chaff. We have to start winning it. There's a pretty easy way to do it. Go back to that Cleveland debate. In the first debate, you had who? Carly Fiorina and six other people. Carly, by all accounts, carried the debate. I thought she did wonderfully in the debate. I thought it was her time to shine. And I thought the six other candidates on that stage with her, for the most part, looked lost. Either their time had passed as candidates or they just don't have a role in this election, one or the other. So I would argue that you take Carly from that field of seven and put her over with the big boys table, the field of 10, and now you're looking at 11 Republicans. But of those 11 Republicans who are running, I'm looking at five in particular who might give you a path to being the next Reagan or moving the party in a new direction. And let me just quickly walk through these five for you. First up is Jeb Bush. In some respects, Jeb has been a very lucky man in this election, in this regard. If we'd been talking six months ago about this election, I would have been talking about how this is an everybody hates Jeb kind of primary. They'll get into their first debate in Cleveland and they will all jump on him like Caesar was jumped in the Senate and he'll have a very unpleasant night. Instead, thanks to that funny guy with the funny hair, guess what? Jeb is kind of skating. On the other hand, Jeb is not lucky in this regard. He's not found his niche in this election and they're struggling as to what exactly to do with this campaign. They announced the other day that they're spending $10 million, Jeb's super PAC, the one which raised over $100 million, they're gonna drop $10 million of this on advertising. And my friend Sarah Myers in our development office pointed out what's the use of having $100 million if you can't spend $10 million. And it's very smart because you see Jeff having, Jeb having very soft numbers in New Hampshire and Iowa right now. They've gotta bump him up and get him moving again. What is Jeb running on though? Well, he's a Bush. He's not a movement conservative at the end of the day, and I know you can point to a conservative record in Florida, but Bushes are not really movement conservatives when you get down to it. I gave a Hoover speech in Greenwich, Connecticut uh, last December, and Greenwich, Connecticut is the ancestral home of the Bushes. And actually, I spoke at the uh, Greenwich Field Club, which is where uh, Dorothy Walker Bush, George H.W.'s mother, played lawn tennis and played softball. And if you go into the playroom of the clubhouse, you see the champions boards and all over the 1930s there is Mrs. P. Bush, Mrs. Prescott Bush, and that's Dorothy Bush. Dorothy Walker Bush was an interesting lady in that she was one part incredibly polite. It just drilled into her son the idea of being nice. Half-half was his childhood nickname. He was always giving people half of what he had. But the other half of her was just insanely competitive. When she was almost nine months into her term carrying Jeb, she was playing softball. And the story is that she went into labor with Jeb when she was rounding third base heading home. And the story continues, she actually crossed the plate and then decided to go to the hospital after that. 
So Dorothy played to win, and this is a streak you see inside the bushes. Politically, they play to win, but they're also polite at the same time. How else to explain why the elder Bush and George H.W. spend time with Bill Clinton in their post-presidencies? So the question is, what is Jeb running on? Jeb is running in some respects the same way that Tom Dewey ran in 1948 as a nominee, that Bob Dole ran in 1996, that George W. ran in 2000. He's trying to take the edge off of conservatism. So Jeb talks about reaching out to Latinos. He takes an issue like, global, uh, like climate change and global warming and sort of wants to admit to it but not completely buy into it. He'll walk away from discussions about same-sex marriage. He is trying to, uh, to sand down the conservative edges you see. The other day, a uh, friend of Jeb's was quoted blindly in the New York Times, not attributed who said it, but when asked to describe uh, Jeb, the person said Jeb is, quote, the one guy you can rely on in this election. But when you think about that, that's not a very good way to sell a candidate. Think of trying to buy a candidate or trying to vote for a candidate as, in effect, looking for a superhero. Well, when you talk about the candidate being the one you rely upon, that's not Batman. That's Alfred the Butler. So, not a, not a good sell for Jeb in that regard. So Jeb is the first Republican to look to in terms of bringing the party down a path. The second one I look to with great interest is the governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, uh, who was in the news today uh, coming out with a health care plan. He said that on his first day in office, he will introduce legislation. He'll call it his day one patient reform plan, and that will be to repeal and replace Obamacare. Now, Walker, I find interesting in this regard. Walker is the son of a small-town Baptist minister, and he is able to speak to voters in a way that is best described as pastoral. Ronald Reagan had the same skill as a speaker. It's an ability to take, to an extent, religious thoughts and religious tones, but to convey them to people. And Reagan had this gift, and I think Walker has this gift, too. Uh, somebody once described it as an altar boy appearance with a Darth Vader style toward policy. Um, the quiet killer, I guess. Um, you see in Walker a very strong brand in social conservatism. He just signed a, a, very, strict, uh, a very strong abortion restrictions bill in uh, Wisconsin. He's also navigated his way through the field. He's moved on immigration. Uh, sadly, he moved on ethanol subsidies in Iowa because Iowa is at the heart of his existence. He, too, is a candidate who's struggling right now. Uh, his numbers have dropped in Iowa, and they've dropped dramatically in the last two months, and I think he suffers from the idea of peaking too early. If you think of Iowa as a track event, uh, it's not a marathon as much as it is maybe an 800-meter run. And you have to run at a very fast clip, but you really have to sprint down the home stretch, and it's not good to peak in the summer as Walker has. So he is talking about putting a lot of money and airtime in Iowa in the next few weeks, and he is also altering his message. And he is going to probably attack the Republican Congress in no uncertain terms, because guess what? That works for the guy with the funny hair. So let's see how far Walker gets down his path. The third I look at is John Kasich, the ebullient governor of Ohio. I have a very good friend in Washington uh, who is a lobbyist who does a lot of work in Ohio, and he uh, got on a plane a few weeks ago, and sitting next to him was Governor Kasich. And the plane started to taxi down Reagan Airport and started to go off in the air, and he turned to him and said, Governor Kasich, how's the campaign going? And John Kasich stopped talking when the plane landed in Cleveland. That is John Kasich in a nutshell. He will just keep going until he stops. Here's what Kasich recently told the New York Times, and I quote, hopefully in the course of all of this, I'll be able to change some of the thinking about what it means to be a conservative. So John Kasich is basically in the business of lecturing conservatives on what it is to be a conservative. This is a very difficult path to walk down, and I think Jeb has struggled with this before. 
Jeb has been out of office since 2006, and there's a tendency when you get out of politics but still speak in political-related events to end up lecturing your party on the ways in which you think it fails, and I think Jeb has had to learn to overcome that and talk more about Hillary and talk more about actually being a candidate than explaining where you think the party screws up on immigration. Kasich has now sort of taken up this mantle, and he likes to talk about big government, compassionate conservatism, big-hearted conservatism, really kind of as many ways the spiritual heir to the late Jack Kemp. This doesn't always sell well with crowds. Uh, when you stand up and tell people that you support expanding Medicaid because you're afraid of what you're gonna say when you meet St. Peter at the pearly gates, maybe you believe that in your heart, but I don't think that's the strongest message. Um, so what we see here is Kasich is gonna talk about big government. He's gonna talk about doing things which conservatives don't necessarily like, but he's gonna talk about it in positive ways. You're gonna hear a phrase from him, and that's, quote, people in the shadows. That's what his campaign is about. He said it in almost every state of the state. He's given in Ohio, and he says it repeatedly in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is a very fascinating state for Kasich, by the way. As you know, it's an open primary. Republicans and independents can vote for a Republican candidate, just as Democrats and independents can vote for the Democrat. That's why you see Bernie Sanders doing very well on the Democratic side, because it's a carryover vote. And this is why you've seen Kasich jump up to about third place in New Hampshire and gain on, on Jeb Bush very fast, because independents draw in. About 48% of voters in the 2012 New Hampshire primary called themselves moderate or liberal. So this is John Kasich's moment, plain and simple New Hampshire. We'll see if he can build beyond that. He did, interestingly enough, pick up the endorsement of the governor of Alabama the other day. Alabama, not to be, I don't know if we have any Alabamans in the crowd, but Alabama not to be confused with New Hampshire or Ohio, so maybe it resonates. So let's see how far Kasich goes. The fourth Republican I look at, Marco Rubio simply because I am fascinated with the concept of generational politics. Marco Rubio, if he got the nomination next year, would be how old? 45, smart crowd, 45. You have to go back to 1856, and the first ever Republican nominee, the illustrious John C. Fremont. He was a California Republican. That's how ancient the history is. There was a Republican from California succeeding. He was 43 years old at the time he got his nomination. We have not had a young nominee that age since. So Rubio would be a decided departure for Republicans. This would be interesting in this regard. Let's suppose he's 45 years old going up against Hillary Clinton, who will be how old next November? 68, how about 69? She turns 69 about three weeks before the election. You have a 24-year age gap now thrown at the Democrats which is, of course, the opposite of what worked for Obama in 2012 against Mitt Romney, but especially worked well for Obama in 2008 against John McCain, and also worked well for Bill Clinton in 1996 against Bob Dole. So let's see if a 45-year-old Republican is a little more successful in talking about what it is that 40-something non-AARP Americans are going through, which I suspect would be raising children, because Rubio is a father of several young children, saving for college, and also a sleeper issue, which is caring for your aging parents, which is something which is going to land very heavily upon Gen X and the baby boomer generation. So a Republican who could talk in different ways. Also somebody with a very interesting immigrant story to talk about, so Rubio would be very different. Rubio's had a very interesting approach to this election. He came out with a very big splash in April announcing, and he announced very early. Usually it's a kiss of death to announce at the beginning. Usually you want to wait until in the process, the sweet spot for announcing this year, by the way, June 16th, if you just go by past presidential winners, June 16th was the time to get in. 
Jeb Bush got in on June 18th, so maybe Jeb knows something that we don't. Um, but after announcing in April, he then went off the grid for about two months where he just simply went out and raised money very quietly. Then he came back in very big in July and did a very much publicized, very splashy trip around Iowa. Then he went back to the Senate and kind of bored his way back into the woodwork. Um, now, after the, having a pretty good debate in Cleveland, he's kind of gone back into tortoise mode. And you hear this phrase constantly among the candidates, he or she is the tortoise in the field. The idea that you're just gonna outlast what's going on at the top of the ticket and just wait your turn until things move in your direction. Uh, I think Rubio's in a very envious position in this regard. If he doesn't get the nomination, it'll be very hard to keep him off the ticket at the number two, especially if you're Scott Walker and looking to balance with Florida. Our fifth Republican who I look at in terms of a pathway is somebody not talked about today, and that's Ted Cruz. Why Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz did something rather interesting last week while candidates are spending their time in Iowa and New Hampshire. Where was Ted Cruz? He was in South Carolina, in Georgia, in Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. What do those states have in common? They're all part of what's called the SEC primary next March. There are four Republican primaries and caucuses in February, then we slip into March, and there is the Florida showdown. And then after Florida, there is a break, and then on March the 11th, all of these southern states cluster together, like the football teams in the Southeastern Conference, and they hold a one-day big, um, big state runoff of primaries. So this is Cruz's thinking. Cruz sees this race as boiling down to two moderates. Bush and Rubio, let's say, and him as the alternative. What alternative? The Tea Party alternative. Remember, before the Donald came along, before the other people rose to the top of the ticket, there is Ted Cruz running as the de facto Tea Party guy and this candidate. It's interesting how times change. A few months ago, we would have talked about Ted Cruz and Rand Paul being in sort of a debt struggle over Tea Party votes. Rand Paul is fast disappearing from this race, and now it's Ted Cruz who appears to be stepping into that. Why do I take Cruz seriously? Because again, he's thinking long-term. He's not gonna waste his time in Iowa and New Hampshire. He's gonna wait until the South. Second, he is the answer to the trivia question, name the candidate who has raised the most hard money in the cycle. Not soft money and super PACs, but hard money. It's Ted Cruz. So he's sitting on a lot of money. Also, Ted Cruz stands to have a very big September and October in this regard. For conservatives, this is gonna be a very awful fall in this regard. Some very unpleasant things are going to happen in Washington. They're gonna to have to wrangle once again with the federal budget, which means that you're gonna have probably some very unpleasant continuing resolutions, CRs. Also, they're gonna to have to deal with the deficit ceiling. And this will send the Tea Party through the roof and it just plays right into the wheelhouse of someone like Ted Cruz who will just jump on this. Now then, a name I haven't mentioned, Donald John Trump. How old was Donald Trump, by the way? 61? Let's do the auction, let's raise it. Let's go up beyond 61. Did I get 65? How about 68? 69. Turned 69 in June. But when you think about it, Donald Trump has been on the scene for over 30 years now. Remember, he came along in the 1980s, uh, and he was what he was going to uh, change the world of professional football forever with the USFL, and uh, started getting into the Trump casino. He's gonna change casinos forever with, uh, with the uh, Taj Mahal in, Las in Atlantic City. So he's been on our scene for better and for worse for the better part of 30 years now. So yeah, he's 69 years old. I was surprised that he, uh, he managed to age. How amazing that hair could stay that color for that long. I actually have friends who work for Donald Trump. And actually, I talked to them today, and they gave me something that they wanted me to pass along to you. Trump is going to unveil a new campaign poster tomorrow, and you're getting a sneak preview of it. Can you fire it up for us? 
Let us all hold hands together now as Xing saying, we shall overcome. About Donald Trump. On February 23, 1934, a politician took to the airwaves. He went on NBC radio that night, national radio. There was no television. This is a way to communicate to America. He was a very frustrated politician. He'd been a senator in Washington for a couple of years, in 1932 and 1933, and he had tried on several occasions to introduce legislation which would limit incomes and redistribute wealth. And each time he introduced the bills, he was stymied in committees. Why? His views were seen as too radical for Congress at the time, even though we were in the depths of the Great Decision. So this gentleman went on radio that night on NBC, and over the nation's crackling airwaves, he uttered three words, every man a king. His name was Huey Long, senator from Louisiana, the kingfish. And Huey Long was Donald Trump before Donald Trump came along. Huey was part statesman, but a great part showman. And what he understood was a good way with words, he could sell an idea across the radio, and every man a king took off. Not long after he uttered the words, every man a king, prolonged people around America started organizing what they called share our wealth chapters. And this was 1935. And what he was doing is he was warming up to run for president in 1936 and take on Franklin Roosevelt. And Franklin Roosevelt was terrified by this concept because here was a guy in the great beyond who was connecting with real struggling Americans. A political consultant quoted at the time said about Huey Long, quote, the only way they'll keep him from the White House is if they kill him. And if you know your history, that's what happened to Huey Long. He was shot dead in the state capitol in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And that was the end of Huey Long. But that was 80 years ago, and the idea of a media star, somebody who understood mass media and could feed on public resentment. What's happened in those 80 years since? In 1948, you had both Henry Wallace running as a progressive, as a third-party candidate, Strom Thurmond running for what he called the state's rights Democratic Party, tapping into public resentment, in Thurmond's case over civil rights. 1968, you had George Wallace running in the American Independent Party as a third-party candidate, tapping into, once again, frustration over civil rights. In 1992, you had two challengers to the throne. You had Ross Perot and Patrick J. Buchanan. I lived the 1992 experience personally. I was working on the Bush presidential campaign. This is not a bragging point, folks. If you meet with other Bush people who've worked in past Bush presidential campaigns, and they say, which one did you work on? And you say, 1992, they do this. They flash an L on their forehead. Because of all the Bush national candidacies, that's the one that managed to lose. So not a bragging point necessarily. But in 1992, we sat in our little campaign office in this condemned building. It literally was a condemned building across from the Washington Post, which is writing hateful things about George Bush every day, looking at the world beyond us and trying to figure out what to make of this crazy guy from Dallas named Ross Perot and this flame-throwing columnist in Washington named Patrick Buchanan. And we couldn't decide if we should take them seriously or we should attack them, or mock them, or just let them run their own course. This was especially problematic in the primaries because there was Buchanan challenging President Bush in New Hampshire, and what was Buchanan running on? He was running on the idea of protectionism, Buchanan hates free trade, and he was running on an America which is losing its cultural grounds. Pat Buchanan was a very early advocate of English as a natural language, and he was complaining about immigration in the United States. And Buchanan, by the way, speaks very fondly of Donald Trump these days as well. At first, we thought we'd ignore Pat Buchanan. Then we made a mistake. We decided to overcompensate. And so we went around New Hampshire and we started sending out documents, George H.W., real conservative. And this is usually where you get into trouble in politics, where you start overplaying your credentials. 
For example, you go back to 2012 with Mitt Romney. I think one of the very bad things that Mitt Romney did very early in the process was he called himself severely conservative. Severe to me is an adjective used best to describe thunderstorms and migraine headaches, not one's political <laughs> ideology. That's what Mitt did, and it's raised this unsettling question among activist conservatives of just really how conservative this guy is. The point is we overcompensated with the elder, elder President Bush on just how conservative he really was. We lost his authenticity in the process of doing that. Then we decided to mock Pat Buchanan. For a while, we made fun of the fact that this protectionist drove a Mercedes-Benz and so forth and tried to play that up in Michigan. And then we kowtowed to him, we pandered to him, we catered to him, and we gave him a speaking slot in Houston that year, that year's national convention. And he gave just a god-awful speech, which was just terrifying. It just drove voters away like crazy. So we handled that situation about as badly as possible. I mention all this because, to me, this is directly analogous to what's going on in the Republican field right now. Every candidate out there challenging the Donald is trying to decide on a given day, do I go after him? And it's very tempting because if you attack Trump, you get attention. It doesn't always pay off. Rick Perry tried this early. His campaign has gone nowhere. Rand Paul did this. He was the first guy to drop the gloves in the debate. His campaign is free-falling as well. Do I flatter the Donald? Well, Trump doesn't really care if you flatter him or not. Do I just you know, disassociate myself with him and move on to do my own campaign? Or do I try to imitate Trump? And I hope for their sakes that the other candidates don't try to imitate Trump because they won't be as good at being, at being Trump as Donald Trump is. Scott Walker, for example, plans to attack Congress in speeches. He's being Trump. Walker also, in talking about his health care plan, uttered the words, it's that simple. Those are the same exact words that Ross Perot used in 1992 in describing every Rube Goldberg plan that Perot had to change the government as we know it. It's that simple. It doesn't work trying to be somebody else. So a caution about that. Where do I think this is going with Trump? Well, first of all, I don't write him off. I know it's very tempting as an academic and a propeller head just to say he's not going to go anywhere. Uh, the fact of the matter is there are five and a half months to go between now and when they start gathering in rooms in Iowa and caucusing. That's a long time in politics, folks. Considering where we were five, five and a half months ago when we were viewing Trump as just, well, he's a guy who's just doing what he always does every four years. He's talking about running for president, but he won't do it. He's just trying to leverage more money out of NBC or sell a book or something like that. Well, here we are five and, a month, five and a half months later, and here he is. But in the next five and a half months, what will you have? First of all, you'll have a Republican debate just about every month, like clockwork. And the next one is September the 16th at the Reagan Library in uh, Simi Valley in California. Each debate is a challenge for the candidates on the stage to, number one, navigate vis-a-vis -vis Trump. It's also a challenge for him to come up with concrete ideas. He was asked on Meet the Press the other day, where do you get your foreign policy advice? And what did he say? Yeah, basically by people I watch on TV. Now, now you can say on the one hand he's being authentic and he's doing exactly what I would advise. You know, he would be fooling you to say, well, as you know, I'm a serious student of government and I'm a statesman and I have five foreign policy books open on my Kindle right now. As a matter of fact, he's not going to snow you, snow you with that. He's going to say, well, you know, I, you know, I learned what I see on TV and that's that. But at some point he does have to add more gravitas to what he's doing, more meat on the bone. Good example is his immigration plan the other day. On the one hand, Trump is smart and he knows what to tap into uh, when he talks about, for example, deportation and building a wall. Recently, a Stanford political scientist and a Berkeley political scientist did a very informal survey on the issue of immigration and they laid out five policy options for independent voters to look at as to what immigration path they support. 
The most popular answer, deport all illegal immigrants and build a wall along the Mexican border. So Trump knows that he's tapping into something on that regard. On the other hand, he's also offering solutions, as Eddie Lazier referred to, that just don't necessarily hold up. For example, you can't deport people and their children if the children happen to be citizens because they were born here. It won't happen. Secondly, you can't deport 11 or 12 million people at one time because guess what? I think in the history of this country, the most people we've deported in one year is about 200 to 250,000 people. Each case would have to have a hearing in the process. So just think about just the man hours involved in trying to make it happen. So it's just not, not a practical existence. And building the wall in Mexico, we can have a long talk about the feasibility of making the Mexican government pay for it. So the challenge is going to be on that man to actually offer feasible solutions. And we'll see if voters, as we get closer toward election time, take him more seriously. Another word of caution, by the way, when you look at Trump in these polls, look very carefully at the fine print of what the survey is. Fox News, for example, came out with a survey the other day which showed Trump, I think, at 26%, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe even higher. But these were, quote, self-described Republicans. These are not people who are going to actually trudge through the snows of New Hampshire and Iowa to cast votes. These are not likely voters. These are just people who have an opinion of Donald Trump. There's a world of difference between that and people who actually are going to show up come voting time. So look at the polls carefully and see who's self-described, who's registered, and then who's a likely voter and see how he holds up. So there's a challenge for that man to come across as more serious in terms of policy. As George Will put it the other day, you know, do Americans want to trust Donald Trump with nuclear weapons? It's a pretty good question. But on the other hand, there's a challenge for these other five candidates and several more who, I've talked to, who I haven't talked about, but will be glad to in the Q&A as to where they're going to step up in this process. For Jeb Bush, for example, Jeb still struggles with the Iraq answer. He still has his brother and his father's clouds over him to deal with, and the question of what exactly will a Bush presidency do. So he has to struggle with that. Scott Walker, I actually salute Walker for coming out with a saying that he would want to do health care and do it on the first day. Uh, I tend to be a sucker for candidates who offer, God forbid, vision, but also candidates who have an action plan. Uh, my friend Walter Blessy was here today. He and I talked about this a lot in 2014. It just drove me nuts on a daily basis how Mitch McConnell would not make the pivot from talking about getting control of the Senate to what we're going to do with control of the Senate. And nothing would have stopped them from saying, here is my plan. Here are the 10 bills I'm going to jam down the president's throat in the first week that we get back into office instead. And I think this feeds into the frustration that people have about politics these days. The Republicans got in, and with all this power, they didn't know what to do with it. Segwaying it for a moment, by the way, this gets in the question of why conservatives are so frustrated. Why are you so mad? And it's a great question because you look at these polls and you see that on most surveys when asked about right direction and wrong direction in this country, it's a two-to-one answer. For every one American who thinks things are going swimmingly, two Americans think the country's on the wrong course. The question, though, is what really has conservatives upset? I flash back to 2006. And to me, this was sort of the trigger for me. And a very lovely lady, her name is Harriet Myers. Colin Stewart actually has worked with Harriet Myers in the, in the post-presidency of George uh, W. Bush. Um, Corey Shockey was in the Bush White House at the same time Harriet was. Harriet was George uh, Bush's counsel in the White House, and she went back to him in the gubernatorial years. She was one of his closest friends. Uh, they shared a lot of ties, friendships in Dallas. They're both deeply religious people. In 2006, George Bush was given a great gift, and the gift was Sandra Day O'Connor stepping down from the Supreme Court. And now George W. had a Supreme Court uh, choice, and for conservatives, activists, grassroots conservatives, this is a huge 
deal who you're going to put on the court because now you're talking about affecting society for 20 or 25 years. George Bush had a selection committee and the selection committee came up with the choice of John Roberts to select Sandra Day O'Connor. And then life threw President Bush a curveball. Justice Rehnquist passed away. And now he had two picks. So what did the president do? He took John Roberts from column A, being the Sandra Day O'Connor replacement, and put him into column B and made him the replacement for Rehnquist. And so John Roberts became the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But then the question is, what happened to the Sandy D. O'Connor replacement? At this point, Harry Reid enters the equation. Harry Reid, that wonderful stand-up virtuous man of principle from Nevada, tells reporters that, gee, a great pick would be Harriet Myers. And why Harriet Myers? Harriet Myers happened to be in charge of a selection committee, which came up with John Roberts. So President Bush, liking Harriet Myers and also thinking there's a moment for bipartisanship here, nominates Harriet Myers, and it lays just an enormous goose egg with conservatives around the country. Bob Bork, who was still alive at the time, called it a, quote, disaster. Uh, the president was filleted in the pages of the National Review. Um, Harriet Myers, though a very nice lady, had never served as a judge. She uh, was not really that well-versed in constitutional law. She never argued before the Supreme Court. She was not the sort of activist conservative who conservatives desperately wanted to put on the high court. What they saw was another suitor, going back to the past Bush. So he puts Myers forward. She goes up on Capitol Hill. The interviews don't go too well. They do murder boards at the White House where they ask her a lot of tough questions. It gets even worse. Uh, then Arlen Specter, that other wonderful pillar of virtue from the great state of Pennsylvania, he starts telling reporters, I'm not sure it's going to happen for her, and away goes Harriet Myers. I would contend that for conservatives, that kind of encapsulates, encapsulates a lot of what frustrates them about Washington and past Republican presidencies. Given the opportunity to put a really strong person on the court, the president didn't do it. He thought he could deal with Harry Reid when Harry Reid is gonna shake hands with Harry Reid and you better count your fingers when you get them back. He's not a man to be trusted. And keep in mind, shortly after Myers steps down, which would be October 2006, we then have the landslide that year where the Congress goes Democratic. The Bush presidency sputters to its last two years in office. We then go to the John McCain campaign, which is just not a very well-run campaign. Then what? Two years of Obama, then finally the midterm elections in 2010 where there's a glimmer of hope for Republicans, but John Boehner has a hard time running the House. They don't know what to do in things like government shutdowns. We then go to 2012 and the Romney election, or lack thereof. Then we go to 2014, another moment of sunshine when it's an all-Republican Congress. Now we can really stick it to Obama and make things happen, and guess what? They have not. So I would just argue that for those 10 years, just about, it's just been almost like for a football player, sort of a series of repeat concussions. And I think that's, in a nutshell, why conservatives are frustrated. Um, two words of advice here, and then I'll be glad to take your questions. I, sometimes uh, you will very, very flatteringly ask me, why don't you go work for a candidate? Or maybe you don't like me, and that's your curse. I don't know. But um, you always know, say, well, if you're going to advise a candidate, what's your advice? And I'd advise two things. Number one, it's this issue of authenticity. You want to avoid this trap of trying to sell yourself as something you're not. And it's a great challenge for every Republican because you want to go to Iowa and New Hampshire and be liked. But just talk about who you are. You look at the three people who've had the best summers in the Republican field, and who are they? This guy, and Ben Carson, and Carly Fiorina. These are three different human beings who come from different walks of life, different parts of the country, but they have this much in common. Each has run a very authentic campaign in terms of explaining who they are. They have not tried, themselves as, tried to sell themselves as something they're not. You can sometimes criticize them as having oversimplistic solutions. 
maybe they're not all qualified to be president of the United States, but there's essentially been truth in advertising with, you, with each one. You don't see them as politicians. And not a coincidence that the three non-office holders of the field of 17 are the ones having the best summers. So in a word, authenticity. And then the second one is you really need to drill down and figure out what this wrong track is, why people are just not in a very good mood as voters and why they would wanna make you change things. I suspect this applies on several levels. At Hoover, I run a project that we call the Golden State Poll. It's a poll, surprisingly, about California. Catchy title, I know. We poll, we poll every two, two, to two to three or four times a year, and we poll on California-related issues, and we typically have a series of questions at front which ask people economic-related questions. Very simple things, you know, if you were to lose your job tomorrow, how confident do you feel about making a lateral job movement? Not a better job movement, but a lateral job movement. Very bad numbers on people's confidence. How do you feel about being able to save for the future? Not so confident. I would contend there are a lot of people who just feel economic pressure, plain and simple, right now in this country. So a smart candidate taps into that. I suspect those who have children worry about the cost of college, but also worry about the direction the country is going in in general. Uh, I'm going to sound like a very old man now, but it's a very worrisome country when you see people walking around who are all tatted up and, and just sort of act crudely, and just there's sort of a lack of dignity in the country, if you will. So I think this is sort of a cultural concern as to where we're going. And as Corey alluded to earlier, it's a scary world out there as well. Just, you know, you see beheadings on YouTube and, and just, you know, people around the world who just seemingly have lost their mind or more to the point it is lost in this frighteningly medieval mentality and what's happening to the world around us. So a smart Republican, I think, is going to tap into those two things. They're going to offer you really who they are, not who, who, who they want you to be, but who they really are. And again, Romney made this respect, mistake when he talked about being severely conservative. Uh, Bob Dole in 1996 probably said it the worst when he said, I'll be Ronald Reagan if that's who you want me to be. No, don't try to be the next Ronald Reagan. Try to be the first Scott Walker, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, whoever you happen to be. But secondly, try to encapsulate why it is that people are upset with the way country has gone adrift. This is what Ronald Reagan brilliantly did in 1980. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Economically, socially, foreign policy, so they're the keys to the kingdom. And if you're kind enough to hear me back, have me back here again next year, maybe I'll give you some predictions on November 2016. But again, I appreciate you having me here today. And by the way, this gathering is, I don't have the actual numbers, but this is at least to a third or half as large as the one last year. Uh, this is a testament not only to the great people who organize these events, but also to those of you who are kind enough to network and invite friends to this. Keep in mind that what you've seen here today with the four fellows plus General Mattis tonight, this is the tip of the iceberg. You can come to Stanford anytime you like and meet people with first names like Condi, last names like Schultz, just amazing human beings, and just listen to wonderful ideas and talk to terrific fellows all day long. So if you like what you heard today, I encourage you to explore the world of Hoover Fuller. By the way, like any cheap lounge act, uh, I'm in the lounge for the rest of the day, and I'll be around at dinner tonight. So any, any questions we don't get next to in the next 15 minutes, I'll be glad to take up with you afterwards. So thanks for listening. <laughs>